Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In today's episode, we listen to the music from Earthquake, made in 1974. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Thanks for being here today. I think you're going to learn a lot about the film and score featured on this episode. The year 1974 was big for the disaster movie genre, with three studios in a race to put out three disaster movies that year. Universal Pictures was responsible for two of them, starting with the film Airport 75, a sequel of sorts to the 1970 film Airport. While Airport wasn't technically a disaster film, Airport 75 was, chronicling the tale of an airplane whose pilots are either killed or maimed and no one else trained to land it. It debuted in theaters in October 1974 and did big box office in its opening weekend. The following month, Universal released the film Earthquake, and the studio was putting a little more behind this film. The budget for Earthquake was more than twice that of Airport 75, so Universal needed Earthquake to do very well at the box office. And it was also premiering the month before The Towering Inferno, which had the financial and marketing heft of a combined collaboration between 20th Century Fox and Warner Brothers. For Earthquake, Universal relied on Charlton Heston, who was one of the stars of Airport 75, to draw people into the theaters. Employing a large roster of celebrity actors was a hallmark of disaster movies, and Earthquake had three Oscar winners in its cast, and two others who were nominated for an Academy Award. One of those Oscar winners was Walter Matthau, and he has a prime cameo in Earthquake, playing a drunk at a bar, and turning in what I felt was the most memorable performance in the movie. Matthau used an alias for his screen credit, but there's no doubt it's him, even under the bag, wig, and costume. Then there was Heston, and George Kennedy was the other Oscar-winning actor in the film, with nominees Ava Gardner and Jean-Vievre Bujold playing the wife and lover of Charlton Heston's character. Jennings Lang was the producer of Airport 75 and Earthquake, and in the realm of this podcast, he is the one responsible for bringing together Steven Spielberg and John Williams on Spielberg's request. So probably Jennings Lang said, I'll get you this meeting, John Williams, but you also have to do one of my disaster films. Directing the film is Mark Robson, who teamed with Williams for the third and final time on this film. Robson made only one more film, called Avalanche Express, and died before it was released in 1979. Watching the film, it's quite obvious where the money was being spent. The special effects are amazing. Though some of the post-production matte shots are very dated, you really feel like Los Angeles is being destroyed on film. That's helped in part by a innovation created by Universal Pictures called Sensorround, which made moviegoers feel like they were actually a part of the 9.9 earthquake with the low rumblings in the theater. When I watched it on DVD, my subwoofer got a real workout for the full eight minutes of the big earthquake sequence. It's no surprise that the men behind the visual effects, Albert Whitlock, Frank Brendel, and Glenn Robinson, won a special Academy Award for their work. It was so good that the Academy didn't even bother to nominate other films for the visual effects award that year. 
Whitlock and Robinson will get another special achievement Oscar the following year for the Hindenburg. I don't know how much Williams got paid for his work on Earthquake, but he probably would have done it for free. About six months before he started working on the score, his wife of 18 years, Barbara Ruick, died of a cerebral hemorrhage. Williams took the remainder of the spring and part of the summer to grieve her loss and realign his life. It certainly could not have been easy, especially since he was now a single father to three teenage children. It's fortunate for him that his work for the next year would keep him close to his family in Los Angeles. And I'm sure Williams was anxious to get back to work. Getting back to work, I'm sure, is tough while in mourning, but it seems like John Williams found a new motivation to carry on his life's work in his wife's honor. In an interview he gave during a panel discussion in 2014, he opened up about a moment in his 40s that has changed how he approached his job as a film composer. Uh, the second question about uh, a personal thing in life that may affect what my work has been, and it's a very, it's a great question, and I really don't know if this is the appropriate form, but I will give you a straight answer. When I was about 40 years old, I lost somebody very, very, very close to me unexpectedly. And before that point in my life, I didn't know what I was doing. But after that point in my writing, in my approach to music, and everything that I was doing, I felt clear about what it is I was trying to do and how I could do it with whatever small gift I may have been given. Mm -hmm. It was a, a huge emotional turning point in my life. Let's leave it there. But, but one that resonates with me still and taught me about who I was and what I was doing and what it meant. And this is a deeply emotional thing. And, and um, uh, in a way, that was the greatest gift ever given to me, if I can put it that way, by anyone. And so that's the best answer I can give you. And certainly a pivotal moment in my thinking and my living of my life and approaching the blank page, absolutely. I immediately knew that where to go with this emotionally. Though Williams never mentions it, it's clear he's talking about his wife's death. I could not find a record of any other major family member dying around that time or any other life event that would be as significant as losing a spouse. Major life events like this can indeed change a person's outlook on life and give them a better sense of purpose. In about six months, that is really going to manifest itself with the start of recording the Jaws score. But let's stick with the score to Earthquake. As he did on Valley of the Dolls and Daddy's Gone a-Hunting, Robson urged Williams to experiment with his musical style for the film, though it's quite clear the director also wanted Williams to stay close to the music he wrote for The Poseidon Adventure. The music for Earthquake doesn't try to make its presence known too much, letting the sound effects department handle the duties of assaulting our eardrums. The film opens with a big helicopter shot through Los Angeles, ending on the Mulholland Dam. Everything seems to be normal, at least right now, and Williams gives us a sense of dread at first, but gets upbeat with a nice melody for two minutes. You'll sense the resemblances between this music and what Williams wrote to open the Poseidon Adventure. Thank you. 
Before I go on, I have to talk about the commercial release of the score. If this were video, you would see me put up air quotes around the word score because the soundtrack features very little of the actual underscore that is in the movie. Besides the opening title and end credits tracks, there are two other tracks that are presented exactly as they are in the movie. The remaining six music tracks are either not the film versions, feature prominently source music, or are heavily re-edited to make the listening experience better. As such, you're going to hear lots of music directly from the film in this episode. One of the moments in the main body of the film that is on the soundtrack is the post-coitus scene with Charlton Heston and Jean-Vivre Bujold. Heston plays Stuart, who I think is an architect, and Bujold is Denise, the widow of Stuart's former co-worker. In this scene, they're talking about everything and nothing in particular, which made me wish the music for this scene were mixed louder so I could have something to enjoy. Another character in the film is a grocery store manager named Jody. When he hears that the National Guard is being deployed in anticipation of the earthquake, he goes home to change into his uniform, complete with a weird blonde wig. His roommates make fun of him, but he walks past them to his car. The woodwinds are playing on the low end, signifying that something is not right here. Thank you. 
true that blondes have more fun? Oh, no. Look at that. I told you he was a fag. Say, Jody, you a fag? If I'd known you was a fag, Jody, I'd have been up here before. Could have used the money. <laughs> I'm going to stick with the Jody storyline since most of the music for his scenes are not on the soundtrack and shows us some good composition by Williams. After the earthquake, the National Guard trucks arrive and we see Jody getting out and ordering men around. Now usually you would think the music for the arrival of National Guard trucks after the earthquake would be bold and heroic. But with Jody in charge, Williams wants us to know that this might not turn out well. The maestro understood the main goal of this scene, to set up Jody's position in the National Guard and his not-so-good intentions. By now, you've probably heard the thematic material for Jody. I don't know exactly what instrument it is, but it's some sort of keyboard, maybe the harpsichord or clavichord. It's an interesting choice of an instrument to convey evil, but Williams would return to that again about 30 years later in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, so he must have remembered the impact it had on portraying a bad character. A little bit later, Jody's roommates are caught looting after the earthquake and brought to the street corner when Jody's National Guard unit have set up camp. Still seething from their taunts earlier, Jody suggests shooting them for trying to steal jewelry. And if you didn't know Jody was a bad man before this scene, you'll believe it afterward. Find any dresses in the car? <laughs> no, Jody. Well, I guess we'll have to shoot them. Hey, wait a minute, Jody. I was telling these guys just today to lay off. I swear to God, I was. Ask him. Yeah. Ask him. Sure, those naked guys on the wall, that didn't mean nothing. We knew that you lifted weights and all that crap. Scum like you think you can get away with anything. Push people around when you want to, steal when you want to, make fun of men who have to work for a living, huh? Not today. Hey, come back, you guys. I was only kidding. Hey. Hey, don't do that, man. Oh! Not like back in the store, is it, Miss Amici? No scrawny bitches coming in asking for double green stamps two days after the special's over, huh? None of that stuff. Move it! I want this whole patrol area quarantined. No civilians are to be allowed through without being questioned. Can't tell, they might be looters. What about the people trying to get through to Wilson Plaza aid station? I meant everybody! There's no other clear streets around here. Move out!
Before the earthquake, Jody caught the eye of a woman at his store. The woman's name is Rosa, played by a young Victoria principal. She was caught looting after the earthquake and is in the custody of the National Guard. As such, Jody uses his position of power to woo Rosa, but that turns sinister when Rosa calls out for George Kennedy's character, named Lou, a disillusioned cop, to save her. Lou decides to go back to rescue her just as Jody is about to rape her. The start of this music features Lou making the decision to go back and rescue Rosa, highlighted by piano hits, to further illustrate the danger she's in. You'll hear Jody's theme when we cut back to Jody assaulting Rosa. The only thing I wish Williams had done better with that scene was give us one more hit of Jody's theme as we see his dead body on the ground. But I suppose it's no use to play a theme for someone after they are dead, especially a villain. One of the stars added late to the film to add some celebrity heft was Richard Roundtree, the original Shaft. He plays a motorcycle stuntman who is planning what he believes to be an elaborate stunt on a track that ends with him driving through a ring of fire. The earthquake destroys the track he built, but before that he does a test run that features a heavily edited run through a loop that would normally be impossible to do. The editing doesn't show him go through the entire loop, which means none of the stuntman could accomplish it. But Williams tries to hide the sleight of hand with a rousing cue for the scene. Thank you. 
The actual earthquake takes place at the 52-minute mark, and it's eight minutes of non-stop rumbling. Not surprisingly, Williams doesn't put music in it, but you have to wonder if there would have been music placed over parts of the earthquake sequence if it were made in the 21st century. I kind of believe there would be. Once the rumble subside, Williams gives us a very short musical moment on low strings and harp, seemingly as a way to ease us out of the onslaught our ears took in the previous eight minutes. Denise's son was riding his bike across a bridge when the earthquake hit, and once the bridge collapses, he falls into the reservoir and lies there unconscious while live wires spark around him. Denise works her way down to Corey and tries to lift him to safety, but she isn't strong enough. She doesn't know that a deluge of water is on its way down the reservoir. This was my favorite musical moment in the film, featuring lots of low tones on the piano. The music for this scene, I believe, was heavily edited from what Williams originally wrote, especially given that the music fades out at a weird moment in the film. On the soundtrack release, the music for this scene is twice as long as it is featured in the film. I'll play the soundtrack version to allow you to appreciate the great piano writing here, which is not a difficult part of composition for Williams.
It's not known if this is actually Williams performing the piano, though he has been performing piano on his soundtracks lately. But either way, it's wonderful performance. Near the end of the film, Charlton Heston and George Kennedy are the only people brave enough to rescue a bunch of survivors trapped in an underground parking garage after a brutal aftershock. There's more of the low note piano run here, with the harp added in for flavor. I even heard a brief run on the harpsichord to complement the harp. The music does well to evoke the dark atmosphere of the sewer and the tight tunnel used to get to the survivors. I would imagine the death toll of the characters in Earthquake, of those we see and those we don't see, is one of the highest in movie history. That number grows in the final moments of the film when the dam breaks and water floods the sewer where Charlton Heston and George Kennedy are trying to evacuate the survivors. Several of those rescued people from the parking garage are swept away, and Heston's character is surprisingly one of them. He's almost to safety, but sees his wife swept away and tries to rescue her. The water's current is too strong, and both are presumably drowned. Those on the street level are left to survey the damage and reflect more on those lost in the earthquake. Williams helps with a eulogy by composing a very nice melody for the end credits, which includes the names of many of the characters who perished. I don't think this melody was played in the main body of the film, and so it marks one of the few times when Williams would write a standalone melody for the end credits. We all know of the music he wrote for Munich, Saving Private Ryan, and a couple of others that also served as standalone music during the end credits, kind of as a way to help mourn the dead. 
And now we get to listen to what I believe is the first eulogy written by John Williams for a film. That's a wonderful piece of music, and I'm moved by it, mostly because Williams doesn't try to go too sentimental with it, nor does he feel the need to put too much brass into it. Williams had lots of options for the end credit music, I think. He could have written a reprise of the music from the opening title, with a little different tempo to highlight the fact that this was not the same city from the beginning of the film. Or he could have just gone silent. On the soundtrack, there's a track called City Theme which features a very good piano performance of the main theme from the opening credits. Thank you. 
I think that would have been just as good of a choice for the end credits. But I'm sticking with the fact that I believe that the end credits choice that was put in the final film is the best one. It fits the mood perfectly. Williams had to go straight from working on the score to Earthquake to starting on the music for The Towering Inferno. He would be the only person to work on these competing films and would be one of the reasons why both films remain the gold standard of writing music for disaster films. I'll talk about that more in detail in the Towering Inferno episode. As for Earthquake, it was a big hit for movie fans. Perhaps the sense around feature was a big draw, or maybe the star quality. At the time, Charlton Heston was a moderately popular movie star thanks to the Planet of the Apes series. But I don't think the average moviegoer knew exactly who George Kennedy, Ava Gardner, or Jean-Vierre Bujold were, and Universal did well to not make the movie poster about their stars but rather the spectacle of seeing an earthquake unfold on screen. As I said, I was quite impressed with that 8-minute special effect earthquake scene, which I think was better than the special effects on the Poseidon Adventure. So I hope you enjoyed this journey through the film Earthquake. Now, knowing that Williams almost had no break between this and the towering inferno, it'll be interesting to hear if there are any similarities in style between the two scores, or if Williams was able to write two very distinct scores within a month of each other. Join me for the next episode as we find out. Now while you're waiting for the release of the next episode, please feel free to let me know what you think about this podcast. You can leave a review on iTunes, you can send me an email to jeffswim at aol.com, or post a comment on the Podbean app. I'm not able to respond to the iTunes reviews, but I do my best to reply to comments posted elsewhere. Thanks again to everybody for listening today, and until next time, the baton is down.